Good evening, I'm William Brangham. Jeff Bennett and Amna Nawaz are away. On the news hour tonight, WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange makes a last ditch attempt to avoid extradition to the United States on spying charges. Then, Taiwan's top diplomat in Washington discusses the island's relations with the U.S. as both confront China. We trust that we will continue working closely with the U.S. administration as well as Congress so that uh, Taiwan can get under circumstances the best defense capabilities. And a look at the presidential race as President Biden breaks a fundraising record and Nikki Haley tries to gain ground on Donald Trump ahead of the primary in her home state. Welcome to the news hour. President Biden says the United States will impose major new sanctions on Russia after the death of opposition leader Alexei Navalny. Officials gave no details today, but the president said the formal announcement will come on Friday. Navalny reportedly died in an Arctic prison last week. His mother appeared in a video today outside the prison, still seeking answers and access to his body and pressing Russia's president for action. Behind me is the IK-3 Polar Wolf Penal Colony, where my son Alexei Navalny died on 16 February. I am turning to you, Vladimir Putin. The solution to the issue depends only on you. Let me finally see my son. I require that Alexei's body be immediately given so that I can bury him humanely. The Kremlin today denied any involvement in Navalny's death or that he was poisoned with a nerve agent. In turn, his widow, Yulia Navalnaya, urged European nations to reject the results of Putin's expected re-election next month. For his part, Putin insisted today that Russia will not deploy nuclear weapons in space. He spoke as he met with his defense minister and urged all nations to honor an international ban on deploying nuclear arms in orbit. U.S. officials say Russia has a new anti-satellite capability, but have not publicly confirmed it's nuclear-capable. Also in Russia, a Moscow court refused to release Wall Street Journal reporter Evan Gerskovich from jail. That's pending his trial on espionage charges, which he denies. Russian authorities also detained a dual Russian U.S. citizen on treason charges. She's accused of fundraising to support Ukraine's army. The United States vetoed a U.N. Security Council resolution today that called for an immediate humanitarian ceasefire in Gaza. The vote was 13 to 1 on the measure, which was backed by Arab states. U.S. Ambassador Linda Thomas-Greenfield said passing it would sabotage negotiations. Demanding an immediate, unconditional ceasefire without an agreement requiring Hamas to release the hostages will not bring about a durable peace. Instead, it could extend the fighting between Hamas and Israel. In northern Gaza, the U.N.'s World Food Program suspended food and aid deliveries, saying drivers faced violence from people swarming the trucks. Hamas called the decision a death sentence, and it comes amid reports of people reduced to eating animal feed. A U.N. study found that one in six children under two years of age in Gaza are acutely malnourished. Back in this country... Two men were charged with murder in the Super Bowl parade shootings in Kansas City. A crowd of fans ran for their lives when an argument turned into gunfire last week. One person was killed and 22 were injured. 
Two juveniles were charged earlier with gun violations and resisting arrest. The U.S. Supreme Court has declined a case on diversity in education. Parents and students argued that a special Northern Virginia high school discriminated against Asian Americans in favor of other minorities. A lower court upheld the admissions policy. The justices also decided against hearing a religion case on whether potential jurors may be excluded over their beliefs. A first-of-its-kind federal trial opened today in South Carolina for a hate crime based on gender identity. The defendant is accused of killing a black transgender woman in 2019. Prosecutors say he'd been ridiculed for having an affair with the victim. In economic news, there could be a new team in the credit card industry. Capital One Financial says it will buy Discover Financial Services for $35 billion. If it wins federal approval, the merger would challenge the dominance of Visa and MasterCard in the credit card industry. And on Wall Street, tech stocks dropped, pulling the broader market lower. The Dow Jones Industrial Average lost 64 points to close at 38,564. The Nasdaq fell 144 points, or about 1%, and the S&P 500 was down 30. Still to come on the news hour, low demand for commercial office space fuels economic fears. A domestic violence call in Minnesota that turned deadly sheds light on a growing problem in the U.S. A new exhibit chronicles the rich history of independent black cinema, plus much more. This is the PBS NewsHour from WETA Studios in Washington and in the West from the Walter Cronkite School of Journalism at Arizona State University. A two-day hearing in a London courtroom began today over the fate of Julian Assange, the founder of WikiLeaks. At stake is whether he will be extradited to the United States on espionage charges. His case has reopened debate over whether Assange is a journalist and publisher or something more sinister. And many defending him say free speech and an independent press is also at stake. This will likely be Julian Assange's last chance to avoid facing prosecutors in the United States. His two-day hearing got underway today at London's Royal Courts of Justice. Assange's lawyers are battling to block extradition, which they insist is politically motivated. American prosecutors want the WikiLeaks founder to stand trial on 17 charges of espionage and one charge for computer misuse for releasing huge troves of classified U.S. military and diplomatic documents back in 2010. It's clear that it will shape an understanding of what the past six years of war has been like uh, and that the course of the war needs to change. The manner in which it needs to change is not yet clear. They say the Australian citizen conspired with U.S. Army intelligence analyst Chelsea Manning to steal military files and diplomatic cables. The Justice Department is also separately investigating whether Assange has ties to the Russian government, especially after WikiLeaks published internal emails from the Democratic Party that were stolen by the Russians during the 2016 election. Today, Assange's wife Stella compared his case to that of Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny, who died in a Russian prison last week. It's an attack on all journalists all over the world. It's an attack on the truth, and it's the, an attack on the public's right to know. 
Julian is a political prisoner and his life is at risk. What happened to Navalny can happen to Julian. Assange's legal troubles also include his arrest by British authorities in 2010 after two women in Sweden accused him of rape and sexual assault. Two years later, he jumped bail and sequestered himself at the Ecuadorian embassy in London, where he stayed around the clock for seven years. As WikiLeaks stands under threat, so does the freedom of expression and the health of all our societies. The tiny Ecuadorian mission eventually evicted him in 2019, and British police immediately arrested him for his bail violation years before. He's been held in a maximum security prison in London ever since. Assange's supporters rallied outside the court today, demanding his release and hailing him as a whistleblower who exposed U.S. military wrongdoings in the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Assange for us, um, for me, he's a hero. You know, he's an advocate for truth, peace, justice. It's really important that he's free, not just for journalism, but for everyone that's actually walking this planet. His work affects us because he's exposing injustices throughout the world. Should the British court reject his appeal, Assange could be set to the U.S. immediately to stand trial. If convicted, he faces up to 175 years in prison. For a closer look at Julian Assange's appeal and the U.S. effort to prosecute him, we get two views. Carrie DeSalle is a senior staff attorney at the Knight First Amendment Institute. Her litigation focuses on freedom of speech on social media and digital age threats to freedom of the press. And Jamil Jaffer, he's a former senior counsel for the House Intelligence Committee who also served in the Justice Department's National Security Division during the George W. Bush administration. Thank you both so much for being here. Um, Carrie, to you first. As I mentioned in that setup there, Assange could be facing 175 years if he were convicted on all of these charges. Do you think he should face prosecution here in the United States? No, I don't. I think regardless of whether or not the UK courts decide to extradite him uh, to the United States, the US Justice Department should drop these charges. They're a direct threat to press freedom here because they could be brought against any national security reporter worth their salt. Jamil, what do you have to say about that? What is, is he a journalist? Is he a publisher, as his defenders allege? Well, a couple of things, William. One, um, these charges haven't been brought against any journalist ever in the United States because Julian Assange isn't a real journalist. Right? He never has been. He's been a hacker his whole life. Um, he doesn't engage in the normal course of journalistic ethics. He doesn't redact sources. He doesn't try to protect uh, the innocent. Right? In fact, all of his disclosures have resulted in more journalists and more human rights activists being under threat abroad than ever before. It's his disclosures that have put those very people, legitimate journalists, at risk. And, Kerry, what do you make of that, that, that there is a distinction here that he, in, in one case, helped... Uh, someone hack into a computer, that is not what a normal national security reporter would do. That may be right, but that's one count of an 18-count superseding indictment. Uh, the Justice Department could have left the charges against him at that one count, but they filed an indictment adding 17 counts under the Espionage Act. And the charges under the Espionage Act are for things that typical journalists engage in every day. It's soliciting information from confidential sources, obtaining that information, and then publishing it. So regardless of whether or not Assange himself qualifies as a journalist, 
uh, it doesn't matter when it comes to this particular prosecution because these charges could be brought against your average journalist. Jamil, I wonder if you would help your, your take on this distinction between being a journalist and between being a hacker, as he says. Does he fall under the First Amendment in any way, in your mind? One, he's not a U.S. citizen, so he doesn't actually have rights under the U.S. Constitution. Now, he's being brought here, prosecuted here. Presumably, those rights will apply once he's here and in our courts. Uh, but having published from abroad, he doesn't actually have First Amendment rights. That being said, even if we apply the First Amendment to him, he doesn't do the things that you would expect a journalist to do. He doesn't comply with journalistic ethics. He doesn't abide by these things. In fact, it's the whole reason the Ecuadorian embassy kicked him out after seven years is he was behaving poorly uh, while there. On top of all that, even if you put aside the hacking charges, right, Journalists don't normally solicit classified information in the sense of, like, go get this specific information out of a classified database. If they receive it, sometimes they'll publish it. But even when they publish it, they take efforts to redact information that was sensitive, protect sources and methods and the like, give the government a chance to respond. Julian Assange didn't do any of that because he's not a real legitimate journalist. And the idea that this prosecution would undermine uh, any journalist, any journalist uh, rights, it just makes no sense to me. Um, Kerry, I, I'm sure you share this concern that many of his supporters and his lawyers have, which is that he would have a very difficult time getting a fair trial in the U.S. Do you believe that's the case? Um, you know, I mean, I'm a U.S. lawyer and I practice in U.S. courts and I, I do still believe that the U.S. courts uh, can proceed through a fair trial. But that said, there are a lot of um, circumstances around this particular prosecution that are terribly concerning. And... Uh, as uh, Mr. Jaffer mentioned previously, this really is the first prosecution of uh, a publisher of information under the Espionage Act, regardless of whether or not he qualifies as a journalist. Um, and I think there are a lot of questions, open questions, that the courts will have to address if he's successfully extradited here. And the biggest, to my mind, is whether or not there are First Amendment limits on his and other publishers' uh, potential liability for publishing truthful information on matters of clear public concern uh, when it comes to the Espionage Act. And Jamil, we should remind our audience that back in 2019, the Obama administration was presented with this option of prosecuting Assange, and they chose not to. Do you have an understanding as to why they chose not to? You know, I'm not exactly sure why they declined prosecution at the time, but of course, since then, the Trump administration has brought the charges. They brought a second superseding indictment, and those charges have continued to be prosecuted by the Biden administration after a change in administrations. A Biden administration that, by the way, most of the people in the Justice Department and the National Security Council served in in the prior Obama administration, including Merrick Garland, who was nominated to be to the, nominated to the Supreme Court by President Obama, right? Lisa Monaco, the Deputy Attorney General, the head of the National Security Division, Matt Olson was the head of the National Counterterrorism Center. So the same people that are prosecuting Julian Assange today served in similar or related positions uh, back in the, in the Obama administration as well. So, so uh, Kerry, what would you argue there? If the administration back then, the Obama administration, you believe did the, made the right call, why do you think that they have changed course now? Yeah, well, I mean, as reported at the time, apparently the Obama administration was really concerned about its own inability to draw a line between Assange and journalists when it comes to what they uh, intended to prosecute him for in this instance. And the Trump administration clearly made a different decision, probably not least because the Trump administration was not at all concerned about jeopardizing freedom of the press and, in fact, was excited, I think, about the possibility of putting the press on notice. 
Um, it's, uh, you know, I think a typical Justice Department practice of maintaining prosecutions that a previous administration filed really for the appearance of impartiality. And uh, I think in this case, however, the, the charges should not have been brought by the Trump administration. And the Obama administration was right uh, not to bring those very same charges when it had the opportunity to. So I think this Justice Department should drop those charges. Jamil Jaffer, what do you make of the, the these separate allegations that are made that that Assange has some unhealthy connection to Russia, that he basically served as a far too willing conduit for those stolen emails back in 2016 from the DNC. Well, you know, William, we've seen that play out um, in real time. We've seen it play out uh, during during that particular incident, but many times as well, where it appears that Assange has this somewhat inappropriate relationship with the Russian regime, he seems to be parroting Russian talking points oftentimes. It's hard to know exactly how those ties play out. They're not indicted, they're not part of the charges, but it appears to be part of what's underlying all this. And it's not surprising in the context of what we've seen the Russians do in terms of election misinformation, disinformation, and their efforts to manipulate Western and, uh, and Western audiences. So this wouldn't be surprising as a Russian tactic, whether it's accurate or not, really doesn't matter to the prosecution because at the end of the day, what Julian Assange is accused of doing, if he's found guilty in a court of law, is prosecutable and is punishable at U.S. law, and has been since 1917. Um, Carrie, lastly to you, the, what happens next? Let's just say he is extradited or the court rules against him and says he could be. Does he have another uh, route for appeal? Um, well, in, in the United Kingdom, my understanding is that he would next have to go to the European Court of Human Rights and that he might be even put on a plane in the meantime to the United States. But certainly within the United States, he would have the opportunity to argue that uh, that he should not be held criminally liable for publishing information, again, on truthful information on matters of clear public concern. And the Supreme Court has held that the First Amendment strongly protects that kind of publication. Now, it hasn't done so in this particular context. But uh, Assange and his lawyers, I would hope, uh, would make a vigorous First Amendment defense to these charges. All right. Carrie DeSalle and Jamil Jaffer, thank you so much, both of you, for being here. Thank you. Thanks. This week, tensions have increased in the Taiwan Strait, following incidents near an island involving the Chinese and Taiwanese Coast Guards. It's happening at a sensitive moment in between Taiwan's recent election and the upcoming inauguration of its new president. Nick Schifrin speaks to Taiwan's new representative in Washington for his first broadcast interview. More than any single issue, Taiwan has long been at the center of tension between the United States and Beijing. Last month, Taiwan elected Lai Ching-te, known as William Lai, as president. It is an unprecedented third straight presidential victory for the Democratic Progressive Party, or DPP. Beijing calls Lai a separatist whose election could trigger war. But publicly, Lai has insisted his policy is to retain the status quo. To discuss these issues and the wider relations among Taiwan, China, and the U.S., we welcome Alexander Tareyu, Taiwan's top diplomat to the United States. Thank you very much, Representative. Let's begin with some recent tension in the Strait. Uh, last week, two Chinese nationals died when their boat capsized while it was being chased uh, about one mile from the Taiwanese island of Kinmen. Today, Taiwan drove away a Chinese Coast Guard boat after yesterday the Chinese Coast Guard actually boarded a Taiwanese tourist boat. Right. What is your concern that these incidents could escalate? Well, 
We've always strived for status quo uh, in the Taiwan Straits. The incident that you just mentioned, it's uh, a concerning uh, trend that is happening. They're the ones who are changing the status quo by changing all these incidents. Uh, they, they talk about red lines, say, oh, you shouldn't cross the red line because this is a fundamental issue for, for the people of Republic of China. But they're the ones changing the red lines. They, they, they draw the red lines constantly on a different line. And, and that is a concerning trend, including the one in Kimin. There's uh, also diplomatic pressure. Uh, after the election, the Pacific island uh, of Nauru traded yes. its recognition of Taipei for sure. Beijing, uh, leaving you with only 12 diplomatic allies. That's 10 countries that have switched from Taipei to Beijing during the term of President Tsai. Why do you believe Taiwan is losing so much recognition? Well, um, on Nauru's case, it was mainland China's uh, punishment to the Taiwanese people for choosing the candidate uh, they did not like. Uh, but we will not go uh, challenge or go uh, race with mainland China uh, in a on a dollar diplomacy. People Republic of China promises uh, these countries a lot of benefits, a, a windfall of you know, um, economic benefits, airports, roadways, housing, etc. But in most of the cases, they go unanswered after they switch sides. Uh, Beijing has recently unilaterally adjusted a commercial flight path. Uh, exactly. I'm going to show uh, a, a map right here. Yes. Uh, closer to the median line in the Taiwan Strait, essentially normalizing the flight of Chinese civilian aircraft closer to Taiwan. Why is that so concerning to Taipei? Well, first of all, their, their, their measure was uh, unilateral, and they should have consulted with Taiwan. The way they consulted with Taiwan back in 2015 when M503 was established. It increased uh, dangers of, of, of national security for us because their, their planes are flying closer to Taiwan, but also increases uh, dangers for civilian uh, people, uh, civilian air routes because there is encroaching on our airspace, and they should have consulted with us first. I have a question about whether Taiwan trusts the United States. We looked at a, a poll that shows over the last few years, Taiwanese trust in the United States has dropped from 45 percent to 34 percent. And of course, we're all watching uh, where Congress has not been able to send aid, mostly to Ukraine, but also to Taiwan and Israel that the administration has promised. The leading rep Republican candidate uh, in the election, of course, is promising uh, or is vowing that he will not uh, stand by promises to NATO. Do you trust that in the future the U.S. will stand by uh, whatever promises it makes to Taiwan? Well, um, the recent uh, definition, whenever people talk about Taiwan-U.S. relations, the most often used term is rock solid. And I would say that the support that we, the Republic of China-Taiwan, we get from the United States is bipartisan. And it's, it's very uh, uh, heartwarming that the Congress has the last session passed over 60 resolutions or, or acts uh, in favor of Taiwan. United States has, is having elections in November, and we, we, are, we, we are trustful that whoever wins the election, or the new administration, uh, this bipartisan support for Taiwan will continue to be. So uh, we trust that we will continue working closely with the U.S. administration as well as Congress so that uh, Taiwan can get, under circumstances, the best defense capabilities as possible. If Ukraine loses to Russia or forced to cede territory in some kind of negotiated settlement with Russia, would that embolden Xi Jinping to attack Taiwan? Uh, that's why the defense of 
Ukraine against the Russian invasion is very important, and the support from 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 all like-minded countries to make sure that Ukraine is be able to defend itself is very important, because uh, facing aggression from authoritarian regimes, and you speak about uh, appeasement, you speak about uh, you know the Crimea uh, incident in 2014. Not much was done, so it emboldened the Russians to attack uh, Ukraine two, uh, two years uh, you know, ago. Uh, but you see also, uh, you see the, the Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi it was in Munich not long ago. Security Forum this weekend. Yeah, the, the security, and, and he, he mentioned about, if you want peace and stability in the Taiwan Straits, then you should not cross our red lines, and then you should follow our One China principle and accept that Taiwan is part of us. And, and, and excuse me, this sounds very much like Munich in 1938, when Hitler said, if you want peace and stability in my region, then, then cut Sudetenland is mine. Isn't it the same thing that they're saying? But besides, I'm, I, as I said... Do you think the U.S. is uh, acting in the correct way to prevent war? Well, uh, we, we're very uh, hardened, and uh, we, we are very um, appreciative that every time the U.S. leaders, as well as other leaders from the United States, from Japan, etc., they meet with the Chinese leadership, they, they warn, they, they appeal to the Chinese side, the, the insistent that peace and stability of, the China, uh, of Taiwan Strait is, is necessary, and they're against the unilateral, uh, uh, unilateral change of status quo by means of, uh, uh, by means of military aggression, no economic coercion. But they also assure Beijing that they will not support Taiwan independence and they will restrain Taiwan from any further action. People in Taiwan are not talking about independence nowadays. You go to Taiwan, nobody's talking about independence. Uh, Again, Taiwan is, uh, the, the, our official name is the Republic of China. We are already a, a sovereign and independent nation. So there is no talk about independence because we already are. And again, as I mentioned in an, another occasion, if we talk about independence, means that we are right now subordinate to some some other entity, which we're not. And President Tsai's uh, 2021 uh, National Day speech, she mentioned this four insistences. We will insist on rejecting any uh, attempt to encroach or annex Taiwan and the Republic of China, and the insistence that the future of ROC Taiwan will be determined by the people of Taiwan. And that's, that's the line that, that we follow, and that's the road that President Lai is also following. Representative Alexander Yu, thank you very much. It's a pleasure, sir. This PBS NewsHour podcast is supported in part by Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. What is it about Dana-Farber that makes it such an adversary against cancer? It's hundreds of Dana-Farber researchers and clinicians making new discoveries inspired by the work of previous Dana-Farber discoverers. At Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, nothing is as effective against cancer as a relentless succession of breakthroughs. Go to DanaFarber.org slash everywhere and see how what we do here changes Changes lives everywhere. <laughs> Former UN Ambassador Nikki Haley today vowed to stay in the Republican primary even if she loses Saturday's vote in her home state of South Carolina. Haley's decision comes despite not winning a single primary race thus far. And as President Biden's campaign prepares for an expected rematch with former President Trump.
To discuss that and other news in the 2024 election, I'm joined by our political correspondent, Lisa Desjardins. Hi, Lisa. Hi. So Haley doubled down on this idea that she is in no matter what. What is her strategy here? What is her plan? She declared this her state of the race and uh, speech. And I want to read some remarks that I thought were striking and something we are to watch carefully. She said she will campaign every day until the last person votes. That's June 4th in the Republican primary. She says she's in this that long. She was passionate, defiant, spoke for 25 minutes. Her argument in some ways is the same. She is saying that much of this country does not want a Biden-Trump rematch, but there were some new things in here, many barbs, and particularly sharp, at former President Trump, who she said has been a disaster. And she called out other Republicans saying they have not been honest about him. I feel no need to kiss the ring. I have no fear of Trump's retribution. I'm not... I'm not looking for anything from him. My own political future is of zero concern. The Trump team, meanwhile, however, sent out a memo today saying, in their view, the campaign will end Saturday. Of course, Haley says the opposite. When will it end is the question everyone wants to know. I spoke to one of Haley's former competitors, Asa Hutchinson, who has now endorsed her. And he said there, there, is, there are some pragmatic concerns here for her. You don't have to win, but you have to show that you're mounting a significant challenge. Then that takes you to Super Tuesday. And you have to have a strong enough showing in South Carolina to showcase to the donors that uh, you've got a shot at this and that you can turn this around. Haley right now is running off of fuel from August when she had those big debate moments and she got brought in a lot of money. So she needs to keep doing that to really keep going. Meanwhile, as those who watch the program know, I worked in South Carolina politics for a while, and I spoke to many of my sources down there. They do see perhaps a way that she can make up a little bit of ground, close the gap, no way. But what everyone is saying to me, including our team on the ground, producer Leila Karan, Ian Cousins, who are returning today, they say there's just a real lack of enthusiasm. They were at a Trump event today, William, that only had 70 or 80 people to greet him. That is a low number. Low turnout is good for Haley, by the way, on Saturday. I mean, but Asa Hutchinson mentioned this, that, that money is critical. Mm. Where, where do the candidates stand on that front now? This is where we bring in President Biden. He actually had some record-setting numbers. News today, his campaign says they raised $42 million in January. That is a record for a Democrat at this time of year. So let's look at everyone, starting with the Republicans together. Haley and Trump, the last figures we had from both campaigns were at the end of last year. Haley with $14 million on hand, Trump with $33 million on hand. The equivalent for Joe Biden, end of last year, was $46 million. So that is good news for Democrats. We have not heard about Trump's latest figures, which makes you question how well he's doing with that. There is another factor for former President Trump. Two PACs, major PACs supporting him, reported that they actually spent $55 million in legal fees for him, and that is before his trials really start. His criminal trials, I should say. Right. I mean, campaign dollars certainly great news for Biden, but they only can't really buy votes with, with dollars. Yeah. What do we know about how he's doing with those actual voters? 
Well, his approval rating still is around the same, under 40 percent, not where the Biden campaign wants it. And there still is this disconnect where the economy, unemployment's doing well, Wall Street in general is doing well. We're seeing growth in productivity. Inflation is getting a little bit better. We noticed a poll today from Monmouth University. It talked about this issue with President Biden, asking, who, should he give get credit for the economic upturn? Look at the largest number there on the bottom. 36% say, no, no credit at all for President Biden for the economic upturn. And when you mash these things together, you look at the who gives him credit, who doesn't, it's 50-50, mm. which is remarkable when you see a lot of the economic numbers. Another statistic that caught our attention from this same Monmouth poll, has your family benefited from this upturn? Look at this. You see about third of this country say they have benefited, but look at that, 64, two-thirds of this country say they still have not benefited. And William, looking at this, maybe the question isn't how much have you benefited, but who? The folks who said that they did not benefit much at all, uh, the largest group there, the significant difference there was folks learning, uh, earning under 50,000. Traditional Democrats, they just aren't seeing any gain. Lisa Desjardins, thank you as always. You're welcome. In recent weeks, federal regulators have signaled concern about one financial sector in America that could spell economic trouble, commercial real estate. Decreased demand for offices coupled with high interest rates have put some serious pressure on leaseholders and smaller banks in particular. Economics correspondent Paul Salman reports from San Francisco. What some folks consider America's ticking financial time bomb, empty office buildings. Commercial real estate is the big problem uh, across the country, really. Real estate economist Nancy Wallace. And obviously San Francisco, the problems are really significant. Especially in San Francisco, which the New York Times called the most empty downtown in America. How empty are the office buildings? About 33, 35% vacant. Developer Jesse Blatt. Compared to what? Natural vacancy rate is 10 to 15 percent. Which means that the owners... They are literally not paying their mortgages. Bad enough, but there are also another trillion dollars in mortgages that need to be refinanced this year and next. And so... If interest rates don't come down, those mortgages would be nearly impossible to refinance, and so we're going to see another wave of what are called maturity defaults of people being unable to refinance. And that would wipe out the owners, leaving downtown San Francisco and similar cities more hollowed out, shades of the great financial crash of 2008. And thus, investor and depositor fears in San Francisco and in the past few weeks all around the country, triggered by losses at New York Community Bank, which announced it will try to reduce its commercial real estate loans. But to some folks, like developer Blout, the current crisis in San Francisco, at least, actually seems like an opportunity. We've never seen prices like this. We started our business at the start of the Great Recession in 2009, 2010, and that was a historic buying opportunity. This moment, even more historic. So Blout's firm, Strata, which moved into this 18-story building in 2022, bought it a month ago for a song. Fully a 70% discount off of what it was valued just five years ago. Okay, a pricey song, $67 million, still just 30 cents on the dollar. 
San Francisco is still one of the best cities in the country. It's the center of artificial intelligence. So there's more office jobs in San Francisco than there ever were. So the office is fairly empty here. Yeah. And yet I see all that traffic on your bridge. It's picked up quite a bit. We're not unlike most companies in San Francisco these days where we tend to let people work from home from on Mondays and Fridays. And then everybody's here. If you were here tomorrow, it would be you couldn't find a seat. Some see a building half empty, Blout half full, and betting on a return to work from work, having paid only 30 cents on the dollar, he has money to fill it up. What, what are you gonna do to get them back? <laughs> We're gonna spend some money, a million bucks, just for the window washing equipment. It's all about creating new experiences for the tenants and giving people a reason to come to work. Including a rooftop common area with a view. We're gonna upgrade all of the pavings and all the railings and everything and put some beautiful planting, some places to sit. So Blout thinks he's buying at the bottom of the so-called real estate cycle. That is, too little office space means soaring rents, prompting a building boom, financed with debt. Eventually, there's a glut. Your tenants skedaddle, especially this time, thanks to COVID. Your rents can't cover your costs. Then you foreclose or you sell your property at a third of its market value and the cycle starts again. But what happens to those holding the commercial real estate loans? Many of them regional banks without much of a capital cushion. What do they do to keep afloat? A lot of them now are working with their borrowers to not take back the keys uh, in the so-called, you know, pretend and extend. Some of them pretend and extend. Down pretend that it's worth more than it is until such time as it comes back. And everyone's hoping that rates come down and, and more people come back to work. And extend is, hey, you can pay us off over a longer period of time so you don't have to give us back the keys. Correct. Now, to be fair, many of San Francisco's office towers are financed by huge banks like Wells Fargo, which can afford bigger losses. But they, too, do so-called loan restructurings a.k.a. pretend and extend. Ed Obachowski and Wendy Ross founded and run the Community Bank of San Francisco. So I asked, is pretend and extend an accurate description? It is accurate. And um, if there's a challenge, I think it's incumbent on both parties to try to work it out. So it's just a question of terminology. I mean, pretend and extend or... Or working collaboratively and taking the long-term view to work out of the loan. Now, their bank makes commercial real estate loans, so is it in trouble? Maybe even headed for collapse, like nearby Silicon Valley Bank and First Republic not so long ago? It's not had a major impact with us. No. It lends modestly, they say, charges a bit more, pays depositors a bit less. But you thank your lucky stars that you're not a bank that put money into fancy downtown real estate. Sometimes small is good. Was that your thinking going in? That small is good in that? That you wouldn't get stuck with uh, properties that might plummet in value? Our core is community banking, if you will. And so it's always going to be the type of lending where we have a loan, but also a personal guarantee. And with guarantor support, we can look at the other assets of the person behind the property, if you will. And that kind of just goes back to the core of community banking. People, it's a people business, if you will. Isn't a big problem elsewhere in the country among regional banks that if the value of what's on their books, 
the collateral of the commercial real estate has gone down a lot, that they're not going to be able to lend locally. It just has a negative knock-on effect over there because if they're working through challenges there, it's hard to shift even psychologically from workout mode to new business development mode. Or perhaps even survive. So much depends then on whether workers return to their offices, as Jesse Blount is pretty much demanding three days a week. And of course, whether interest rates come down. Fed Chair Jerome Powell is holding off on rate cuts for now. How worried is he willing to admit he is about commercial loans? Scott Pelley asked him recently on 60 Minutes. We looked at the larger banks' balance sheets, and it appears to be a manageable problem. There's some smaller and regional banks that have concentrated exposures in these areas that are challenged. But of course, how can the head of the Fed say there is a crisis, or even could be? Okay, you'd like the bottom line, right? On Powell's prognosis, Blout's investment, San Francisco, commercial real estate and its lenders. Well, time will tell has become such a cliche, we can't sign off with it anymore. But let's face it, time will tell until the next real estate cycle, that is. Hope to see you then. Paul Salmon for the PBS NewsHour, back home from San Francisco. A shooting outside of Minneapolis over the weekend is putting the spotlight once again on domestic violence. Police responded to a domestic abuse call and discovered a man armed with multiple guns who barricaded himself, seven children, and other family members inside his home. He killed two police officers and a paramedic before turning a gun on himself. The gunman was not legally allowed to own guns because of a previous assault conviction, and he had reportedly been accused of domestic abuse. To better understand how what happened fits into a broader national picture, we're joined by Rachel Louise Snyder. She's been covering domestic violence for 15 years and is the author of the memoir, Women We Buried, Women We Burned. Rachel Louise Snyder, so good to have you on the program. I want to just run through some, some pretty jarring statistics we just recently pulled from the CDC. This says that over half of the women murdered in the U.S. are murdered by a male intimate partner. Overall, a third of women in America and a quarter of men report suffering severe violence from intimate partners. I also understand that these numbers have been rising in recent years. Do we know why that is? I think there's macro levels and micro levels. I mean, uh, uh, on the macro level, there, you know, women uh, are not staying in bad marriages anymore, and we are better at gathering statistics, right? That's a very simplistic view. But also, guns are um, far more prevalent, and they're used, obviously, for, for homicide, but they're used as threats. They're used as coercion. And uh, I think that uh, uh, men also probably feel like they're losing ground. I think also there, there's a way to read those statistics as positive in that we have more resources now to help more people. So, you know, there's a sense in which the better the resources are, the more people are going to be able to come forward. And so that in itself is a good thing. Um, 
but it's it's baffling because you think the more we know, the more we should be able to prevent it, and it doesn't seem to be the case. Do we know how much the pandemic exacerbated domestic violence in America? That's an interesting question because in the very beginning of the pandemic, uh, rates of um, calls to hotlines went way, way down. And that was a really disturbing sign. It sort of gets at what my previous answer was. That was a really disturbing sign because what it meant is that that victims were um, unable to access resources and unable to make those calls. Once things loosened up a little bit after the first couple of months, rates of, of calls to hotlines shot up in record numbers really all across the world. And I think coming out of the pandemic, you know, there's a lot of exacerbating um, uh causes that are not in and of themselves enough to make somebody violent, but could trigger an already tense situation. And those are things like economic factors, um, addiction, and all that, all those kind of social ills have risen, I think, parallel to domestic violence. If this nexus, as you were describing it, between domestic violence and guns is so clear, and again, with regards to the Minnesota case, we should say that in, that case is still being investigated. We don't really know the details of it. But if that nexus is so clear, and it is illegal to possess a gun if you have a restraining order against you, why is this so hard to enforce? Why is that not protecting more women? That's a... That's a question that I bang my head against the wall asking. I mean, the simple answer is you can have a law, but that doesn't mean it's going to be enforced and it has to be enforced. And when you look at places, I mean, I should say there's a there's a Supreme Court case addressing this right now. We're waiting the, uh, on the decision. But right now, as you say, there is a federal law banning uh, domestic abusers or anybody charged with uh, a violent um, criminal act of, from owning guns, but those guns have to be collected by police officers or whatever. And then in the case of Minnesota, that man had an arsenal. And if you ask, you go around and ask jurisdictions why they don't enforce that, you'll get a, a huge array of reasons. Everything from, well, that's that's that person's recreation. So you take the guns away, you're taking away the recreation. Um, obviously the second amendment has a place there. You know, we have a right to uh, arms, arm ourselves to the teeth. And I've even had police chiefs say to me like, hey, we would love to enforce that, but we don't have, the, we don't have a place to hold all these arsenals, you know, thousands and thousands of guns. When you look at a state like California that has enforced that, you see those gun charges go way down. You see homicides go down. I mean, it's it's just mind-boggling because statistically, almost any way you look at it, if you take the guns, the rates of homicide and suicide and all other gun crimes go down. But we just simply don't enforce it. You touched on this, the Supreme Court. This is the Rahimi case, I believe it is called. Can you remind us what's at stake in that case? Yeah, that's essentially whether or not so it's, it comes out of a, it's a, comes out of Texas. A, a, a not very good guy um, had access to guns and then had his guns taken away from him when he got charges. And his uh, attorneys have he's in prison now, but his attorneys have filed suit saying he has a right to the Second Amendment, regardless. And so they're looking. That's what they're essentially deciding. Do does someone who has a criminal charge have the a constitutional right to the Second Amendment? And those of us who are really familiar with the stats just are living in a kind of terror that the Supreme Court is going to rule that that they they somehow 
maintain that constitutional right, even though they have proven themselves to be a danger to their community. All right, Rachel Louise Snyder, thank you so much for being here. Really appreciate your insights. Thank you for having me. Film buffs will frequently cite Citizen Kane or Gone with the Wind as early classics, but a new exhibit at the Detroit Institute of Arts seeks to showcase lesser-known black filmmakers and actors who have a rich history of their own. Jeffrey Brown has the story for our arts and culture series, Canvas. Regeneration, a silent film released in 1923, was a romance set in the South Seas, featuring an all-black cast. It's just one of more than 500 so-called race films produced for black audiences between 1915 and 1950. There was an African-American sort of cultural production, folks working in front of and behind the camera, using the tools of modern technology to create these visual stories. This is a parallel history that has been overlooked, yet still has been critical to the ways in which we understand film history. Co-curators Rhea Combs and Doris Berger uncovered this parallel history of black film in an exhibition originally presented at the Academy Museum in Los Angeles, now at the Detroit Institute of Arts. Covering the first 73 years of black cinema, the exhibition takes its name from that 1923 silent era film, which survives only in a heavily damaged 11-minute fragment. Elliot Wilhelm is the DIA's film curator. We can see a portion of what it was, but we can also see in a physical way the neglect and the decay that happened to the film. And in a way, it's a metaphor for what the exhibition is about, the erasure of the past. On display, surviving evidence of this overlooked history, documents, costumes, film clips, and vivid posters like this one for the 1939 film, Reform School. What is really stunning is the actress, Louise Beavers, is mostly known in Hollywood films in supporting characters. Hollywood offered black actors and actresses most often butlers and mammy roles. But in this film, she's not playing a supporting character, but the main character. She is the star of the film. She is the boss of the prison and would like to see a prison reform. A very topical story to this day. It means to change from bad to good, to make better morally. Reform School, in fact, was released the same year as two film classics, Gone with the Wind and The Wizard of Oz. But it was long believed to be lost. Now it, along with three others, has been fully restored and is part of Regeneration's accompanying screening series. We can wax poetic about films like Gone with the Wind, but at the same time we had other works taking place like Reform School. These films highlight that African American experiences are not a singular story. The exhibition does reckon with the pervasive racial stereotypes in early films, including the minstrel performances of Burt Williams, who starred in the unreleased Lime Kiln Field Day, the earliest surviving feature film with an all-black cast. And the exhibit juxtaposes its film artifacts with the work of contemporary artists. Here, Carol Walker taking on Harriet Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin, which also became a 1903 film. 
She is providing us another way to look at this work. She's interrogating it. She's challenging it. The early cinema section of Regeneration ends in 1915, the year a technically innovative but deeply racist film was released. Just seeing in person this invitation to the White House for the premiere of Birth of a Nation is really emotional for me. Danielle Aliska, a Detroit-based filmmaker visiting the exhibition, found inspiration for her own work amid the hard truths of history on display. But if I could take anything from this particular film is that it had such a, a, a wide impact on people and made them do things. And I just think about my own films and how I can utilize my films to, in a positive way to impact my people. Long ago, the power of films also drew in Madeline Anderson. We went to the movies practically every week, and I saw that there was something wrong with this picture. Black people were always presented in pejorative ways. They were always lazy, not too smart, happy to do anything that their masters said. And at first it made me angry, and then it made me sad. And then as I grew older, it made me want to do something about it. And that meant becoming a filmmaker yourself. Exactly. At 96, Anderson is believed to be the only surviving filmmaker featured in Regeneration. Through her 1970 documentary, I Am Somebody, about black nurses in South Carolina trying to unionize. We want to be recognized, not because of our race, but because we are human beings. I myself, being a working mother, black woman, identified so closely with them. They were my sisters. Anderson has made a career working in television and on films. I wanted to be a filmmaker that showed the achievements of black people. And I also wanted to work in the struggle for equality for my people. And that's what I've done all my life. I've been an activist filmmaker. And she's still at it, about to go into post-production on a film about her own life. Despite so many structural challenges, people still felt compelled and they still felt inspired to do this work. I Am Somebody is prominently featured in the final chapter of the exhibition, alongside the likes of Melvin Van Peebles and Gordon Parks. Taken as a whole, the hope is this showcase of black film history up to 1971 will celebrate it in new ways. For the PBS NewsHour, I'm Jeffrey Brown. And that's the NewsHour for tonight. I'm William Brangham. On behalf of the entire NewsHour team, thank you so much for joining us. This PBS NewsHour podcast is supported in part by Wondery. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. 
The Underground Railroad. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states and Canada, where their freedom was assured. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondery's podcast American History Tellers takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free, right now on Wondery Plus.